0: you're listening to tech tank a bi-weekly podcast from the brookings institution exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time from racial bias and algorithms to the future of work tech tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible
1: by now dear listener you know the drill space
0: a final frontier open the pod bay doors Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That's no moon. It's a space station.
1: An intriguing opening vignette draws you in before one of your tech tank hosts takes you on a tour of a pressing technology issue, featuring Brookings Institution experts and other thought leaders. I
0: think uh, we we want to be on track
1: to become a multi-planet species and, and a space brain civilization in order to Earth is finite, find out what the universe is. If the world economy and population is to keep expanding, space is the only way to go. I still believe that. But sometimes, a topic is so compelling, so immediately interesting,
0: that the vignette's job is already done. getting signals from MRO. Tango Delta. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance
1: safely on the surface of Mars ready to begin seeking the sands of past life so what do you say let's go to mars thanks for joining our brickings tech tank podcast i'm daryl west Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a new book about AI entitled Turning Point Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. On February 18th, the United States successfully landed the rover Perseverance on Mars. It is the fifth rover we have landed there, and I still am amazed that human beings can do this. The spacecraft launched in July of 2020 and took six and a half months to travel to the red planet. It covered millions of miles and landed within a very short distance of its designated landing spot. Several months ago, I posted a Brookings Tech Tank blog post entitled Five Reasons to Explore Mars. It looked at why Mars is important, what we already have learned about our neighboring planet, and what some of the goals are of the new mission. Among other things, I argue that Perseverance can search for microbial evidence of ancient life, test new equipment, collect Mars samples for later return to Earth, and attempt the first use of a helicopter on another planet. You can read that post on our Tech Tank blog at Brookings.edu. To discuss space exploration and the Mars mission in particular, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Victoria Hamilton. She is a planetary geologist with the Southwest Research Institute located in Boulder, Colorado, and a participating scientist on the Mars Science Laboratory mission. She majored in geology at Occidental College and went on to a PhD at Arizona State University. She has worked on NASA's Mars Global Surveyor and the Mars Odyssey missions. Vicki, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So I want to start with a couple questions about your background. How did you get interested in space exploration and planetary science?
0: I think there are some people in this field who knew all their lives, you know, that this was what they wanted to do. And for me, I was sort of a late bloomer. I was always in in school, you know, somebody who excelled more at the social studies and English side of things than I did at, you know, math and physics and, and chemistry. And so I never really thought that that would be an area I'd have a a, a career in, but I got to college and needed to take a a science class as part of the requirements. And so I took a geology class and just absolutely fell in love with geology. For me, it was just sort of this field where, you know, I, I could look around literally at the landscape around me and understand how rivers you know, how rivers work, how mountains are formed, how volcanoes work, what, you know, earthquakes really are about. And these were all things that, that, you know, really intrigued me. And so, um, you know, I, I I learned in college that I wanted to do that. And then it wasn't till near the end of college that um, I had the opportunity to learn a little bit more about planetary science. and And that led to some other activities. But the, the other thing that kind of contributed to all of this was that as I was growing up, uh, we knew somebody who was uh, an instrumental uh, scientist on the Voyager missions. And so we used to get what, what NASA, NASA used to send out is called lithographs, these pictures that spacecraft would take and they would, you know, tell you about what the picture was. And I was just entranced by those. And so it, it kind of, you know, all, all of those things, I think, led me down the path.
1: I'm always impressed with geologists because they can look at the landscape and determine all of these past features of the Earth in ways that the rest of us are not able to do. So I read an interview with you on the NASA website that said one of your formative experiences was an internship at the Jet Propulsion Lab where you work with the Magellan team mapping Venus. And you got to be what you said was one of the first dozen people on Earth to see images of Venus. So tell us about that experience and how that fueled your interest in space.
0: That was absolutely a a formative point in my what would become my career. Um, I did have this internship between my junior and senior years of college And this, you know, was was about the time that, you know, the average person was starting to have access to things like email. So, you know, the internet wasn't really a thing yet. And so when these images came back from spacecraft like Magellan, you know, you had to wait for those uh, data to be literally printed out into images that you could look at. And so, you know, at that point in time, you couldn't just be anywhere in the world and log into a server and see what data had come down that day. And so it really was kind of a miraculous thing to know that, wow, you know, this is this is an image and, and I'm one of the first people to see it. Um, and, you know, that kind of led almost immediately to the, wow, people get paid to do this for a living. <laughs> um, and so that really was kind of the turning point when I realized that I could you know, take this interest in space and my interest in geology and merge the two and and turn it into a job.
1: So that would be super cool to see those early images of Venus. And of course, now you are seeing early images and data from Mars. Now, we've had major advances in recent years in our knowledge about Mars. The Curiosity rover preceded the current one and documented that 3.5 billion years ago, Mars had liquid water and flowing rivers. Why is this discovery about the past presence of water on Mars so important? And how do we know there likely was water on Mars several billion years ago?
0: So I'll start kind of with the first question. Water, as, as we understand life, water is a fundamental ingredient for life and a requirement for the persistence of life. So the fact that Mars had liquid water makes it of great interest in terms of whether life may have gotten started there, maybe around the same time, you know, life was emerging on Earth. The way we know there was water is based on a few different pieces of information. We have lots of high resolution images now of the surface of Mars. And so geologists map the geology of the planet. And so we can see things like evidence of channels that were carved by water. And we see things like deltas, ancient preserved deltas that indicate there was a, a deposition of you know, sand and rock and things that were being carried by water into basins. And in addition to the what we would call geomorphologic evidence or the, the geo-shapes that we see Um, We also have identified minerals on the surface of Mars that we know are minerals that actually contain water molecules locked up inside them. And so those minerals form in the presence of water. So there must have been a source of water to produce those minerals.
1: As a planetary geologist, you use instruments that analyze the spectral features of minerals and rocks in order to determine their composition. How does that happen and why is this important?
0: So we call this spectroscopy. And one way to think about it is that rocks have colors in wavelengths of light that our eyes cannot see. So our eyes just see what we call the visible part of the electromagnetic spectrum, but there are wavelengths that that our eyes can't see And and the rocks have colors at those wavelengths. And that helps us understand what they're made out of. It's it's directly related to what they're made out of. And so that helps us understand what kinds of rocks are present when we can measure them spectrally um, and which kinds of rocks are not there is just as important as what is there. We can then use spectroscopy to make maps of where different rocks and minerals are located and that tells us again about the history of Mars through time. So that's it's a it's a very important tool we have in our toolbox. So
1: through that simple process, you can learn a lot about Mars as well as other uh, planetary objects.
0: Yes, absolutely. Spectroscopy is is one of the most common tools we use in addition to simple photographic images in terms of understanding all kinds of planetary bodies, not just Mars.
1: So in February, the United States placed Perseverance on Mars. What are its goals? What are you hoping to learn from that mission?
0: So the primary objective of Perseverance is to start a campaign that we refer to as Mars Sample Return. Um, So, Perseverance will collect samples of soil and rock and put them into little tubes and seal them up, and the idea is that those tubes will be collected and returned to Earth by missions that will launch later this decade. So, Perseverance just collects the samples, it will deposit them in locations where they can get picked up later by another mission. But there are other science objectives, such as understanding the geology and the potential for habitability of this particular location on Mars that that it's landed in, referred to as Jezero Crater. But uh, the mission will also test some emerging technologies, such as the production of oxygen from carbon dioxide to make a component of rocket fuel. And also there's a technology demonstration for short duration flight by a helicopter called Ingenuity.
1: So you mentioned Jezero Crater. Why did scientists choose that particular spot as the landing site for Perseverance, and why is that such an important spot?
0: So Jezero Crater is what it sounds like. It is a crater on Mars, but what makes it particularly interesting is that on one side of the crater, the rim has been breached by the flow of water, an ancient river, that actually flowed across the surface of mars and ended up dumping its water into jezero crater and when it did that what happens when you have a a river it's somewhat confined to the to the course of the river but if you imagine that water suddenly spilling out into a very large basin that water spreads out it slows way down And whatever sediment and clay and pebbles and things like that, that were being carried along the river kind of get dumped out. The water doesn't have the strength to keep pushing them along. And when that happens, you form what we call a Delta. And so people who are familiar with the new Orleans area, you know, there's a huge Delta from the Mississippi that dumps out into the Gulf of Mexico there. So it's a similar kind of feature. So This river delta doesn't have any water today. It's an ancient river delta that's been preserved. But because we know it formed by water, uh, and we see evidence of minerals formed in the presence of water in and around this delta at Jezero, we think this is a pretty likely place where we might have a, a good chance to find evidence of past life that has been preserved in these rocks. And so that's what makes it a particularly good location for the collection of samples that we wanna bring back to Earth, uh, as well as just generally analyzing an area that has a, what we would call a potentially habitable environment. What
1: would constitute evidence of past life? Like what is it would you need to discover to convince you that Billions of years ago, there was some type of life.
0: Well, I'd love to see a big dinosaur bone hanging out of a rock somewhere, but I don't think that's likely to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, when we talk about evidence of past life, we're really talking about sort of very minimalist sorts of things like particular organic molecules uh, that we recognize as being significant or, or indicative of life on Earth. Um, particular kinds of isotopes that we can measure in detail uh, in laboratories here on Earth. Um, so that we're not, unfortunately, looking for you know mosquitoes and bugs and and things like that. Uh, but we are looking for what we think of as as particularly primitive uh, life forms. And and there may be not just you know chemical indications or isotopic indications that life was present. But, you know, a number of years ago, about 20-some years ago, there was a suggestion that there was a, a shape in a Martian meteorite that might have been indicative of a sort of um, very primitive uh, microbial life form. And so we might, you know, hope to look and find things like that. But, but that's the kind of scale we're talking about.
1: Interesting. Now, we know it is very early in the Perseverance mission, but what interesting things have the team learned so far about Mars?
0: The mission is still in its commissioning phase. So that means that, you know, they're doing very careful testing of individual instruments and other components of the rover, doing software upgrades and things like that. So the mission isn't really yet actively engaging in regular science operations, But the rover has taken its first short drive and confirmed that the mobility system is functioning properly. And an initial set of images from the SuperCam instrument have been released. And these show remarkably close-up views of rocks in the vicinity of the rover. And what's also really fun is that SuperCam carries a microphone. So there are audio recordings of both the local wind as well as the instrument firing its laser, and it makes sort of a snapping sound. So even though they're not really doing a lot of science return yet, there's still fun things happening, and, and you know it, it's getting me and I'm sure very many other people really excited for what's next.
1: Yeah, some of the pictures that already have come out are amazing, and the resolution is extraordinary. Uh, mm-hmm. If people want to look at some of them online, they will be very impressed by what they see. But what kinds of activities are planned for the next couple of months, and what are scientists hoping to learn from those activities?
0: So, right, after the commissioning phase ends, the the, the thing that will probably happen is some characterization scientifically of the landing site itself to to you know kind of take get a baseline set of observations for this location and then the team will likely start to think or is probably already starting to think about exactly what path they want to take and so the the science team has been thinking for quite a while even long before perseverance landed about what sort of traverse what pathway they want to take to get towards this delta and climb up it. And so based on knowing now exactly where the lander is, they're going to take some observations, you know, around the lander, and then probably start to do some drives to, to get them on their way to the path they want to take over the next uh, Mars year. Um, and then after that, you know, they'll, they'll start to exercise all of the different instruments. And so uh, you know, for me personally, I'm really looking forward to the first analyses of the rock compositions and how those compare to what we predicted we would see from our orbital information, as well as what we've seen in other locations, such as Gale Crater, uh, which is currently being explored by the rover Curiosity. So it'll be really interesting to see how does how does the geology in Gale differ from uh, what we see in Jezero.
1: How can ordinary people who are interested in Mars keep up with mission activities, and what are the best sources of information?
0: Well, the mission website is always a great place to start. It is located at mars.nasa.gov. But of course, if you do any kind of search online for Mars 2020 or Mars Perseverance, you'll find no shortage of information from all kinds of sources.
1: Now, I know one of your other areas of interest is asteroids. So looking to the future, you are the Deputy Instrument Scientist for Thermal Infrared Imaging of a future New Frontiers mission called OSIRIS-REx that has already collected a sample from the asteroid Bennu and uh, will return it and other uh, items uh, to Earth. Why do we need to understand asteroids?
0: that's a really good question. Um, asteroids seem like these little, you know, dead pieces of rock floating around in our solar system, but they're really actually particularly informative because they're time capsules. Uh, that's, that's the way I like to think of them. Um, asteroids formed with the earliest materials in our solar system, around 4.56 billion years ago. And then they stopped. They didn't get incorporated into planets, and so they haven't changed since then. And what we lack on Earth, and even Mars to a degree, as well as the other uh, planetary objects, is a record of what was happening at that very, very, very first part of solar system history. And asteroids record those processes and those conditions. And so we want to understand with asteroids, you know, the same kinds of questions we we think about with Mars, but in a different context, such as, you know, where did the organic molecules come from that led to the initiation and evolution of life on Earth? Uh, What kinds of of, uh, chemistry is recorded in those asteroids and what kinds of solar system processes are recorded in the asteroids that we can use to help understand how we got to all be here where we are today.
1: So I am doing this interview from Washington, DC. Now, if you had a chance to speak with members of Congress, what would you want them to know about the value of space exploration and why should they fund space discovery?
0: Well, I think there's, all, there, there's many different angles to this. I I can speak to it primarily from a a science angle as opposed to a a commercial ventures kind of angle. Um, But I think, you know, space exploration is like any other kind of exploration. It helps us understand the world around us. It helps us understand where we came from. It helps us make predictions about what might happen on Earth. For example, if climate change progresses unchecked, we can look to places like Venus and potentially Mars to help us understand what is the impact of, of those kinds of changes. Um, in addition, you know, we have a really vital research community of scientists and we help interpret the data that come back from these missions um, and again, contribute just to the scientific understanding of, of the world around us and the universe <laughs> beyond that.
1: So I want to ask you how it has gotten being a woman in space science. Uh, what has that been like and what kind of opportunities are there in the future for young women?
0: Um, you know, for me, I haven't particularly felt um, any distinction in space science by virtue of being a woman. I know that is not necessarily everybody's experience, um, but I think one of the things I would say is that space science and, and planetary geoscience in particular is I, I think from what I've heard at least um a relatively more egalitarian uh area of research. I know that that there are other areas in science that can be very challenging for women to break into. Um, But I've been fortunate to have very good advisors who were very encouraging to me. Um, And I think, you know, going forward, there's just as much opportunity, if not more. The community uh, of scientists is really taking a good hard look at how do we enable the introduction of uh, women into the field or, or continue that pipeline, but also bring in uh, people who are underrepresented in what we call the STEM fields, or science, technology, engineering, and math, um, and so I, I think there's a lot of of um, sort of self reflection about how do we make this field even more inclusive, and you know make sure we provide opportunities. And I think NASA has uh, been a really great place to bring people into the sciences in maybe a less intimidating way than in some other fields. Um, so, I, so I think opportunities are, are good, and people should absolutely consider this as a, as a field that is welcoming um, and is trying to do more to be you know, as inclusive as possible.
1: How do you think space discovery will unfold over the next five to 10 years? What types of advances do you think are possible?
0: Wow, um, that's hard to say i mean there's there's what we know we want to do, which is expand human exploration beyond the moon and and go to Mars. that is currently a an objective of NASA's. But I think we also you know want to continue with an aggressive program of robotic missions and telescopic missions because there's only so far humans can go with current technology, it is challenging and costly to send humans, and telescopes and robotic spacecraft can do so much now, um, and the technologies are are improving by leaps and bounds that I think we'll continue to, to want to do that kind of exploration. And I think one of the other areas that is going to become more important going forward is this idea of sample return. Uh, going to destinations, collecting samples either of rocks from Mars or pieces of asteroids or maybe flying through, you know, a plume at Enceladus to, to collect a sample of that and bring it back. I think sample return, uh, you know, in terms of the scientific advancement um, is going to be one of our, our most, um, you know, informative tools uh, for places where we really can't go with humans.
1: It is amazing how much we have learned just in the past few decades, and it makes me very excited about what we will be able to learn just in the uh, next uh, decade. I want to thank Vicki Hamilton for sharing her thoughts with us about Mars. At Brookings, we write regularly about science and technology. You can find more information on our uh, Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. Thank you very much for tuning in.
0: Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.